0: I'm Zibby Owens and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at zibbie Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com where I'll always keep you updated on what I'm up to. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm happy to be partnering today with this really cool company called Modern Mahjong, because I don't know if any of you know people who like to play Mahjong, but I feel like groups of Mahjong playing women are sprouting up everywhere I look. Maybe your mom plays, or your grandma, or your aunt, or your daughter, or your college roommate's mom. Somebody plays Mahjong, and if they do, you should go to Modern Mahjong and get them a vintage Mahjong dice set, um which the, the co-founders Dara and Donna decided they would put together and start selling when they found a lot of vintage Mahjong sets. And they also are doing lots of fundraisers for Alzheimer's and donate a dollar per pair of purple jokerless lotus dot dice sold. Check out Modern Mahjong and get the set. Why not? I had the best time interviewing David Baldacci at 7.30 in the morning on the publication day for his latest novel, Walk the Wire. David is a best-selling author. His first novel was Absolute Power in 1996. The feature film adaptation that followed with Clint Eastwood as its director and star was just one of the many film adaptations Of his 40 novels that he's written for adults, all have been national and international bestsellers, and as I mentioned, several have been adapted for film and TV. His novels are published in over 45 languages and more than 80 countries, with over 130 million copies sold worldwide. In case that's not enough, David has also published seven novels for young readers. A native of Virginia, David received his bachelor's degree from Virginia Commonwealth University and his law degree from the University of Virginia School of Law, after which he practiced law in D.C. He's also a devoted philanthropist, and his greatest efforts are dedicated to his family's Wish You Well Foundation, which he and his wife, Michelle, founded and give grants about reading. So listen to our episode. I had so much fun talking to him, and I bet you'll have fun listening. Hi, David. How are you?
1: I'm fine. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Congratulations on your pub day. It's so exciting.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it is. It never gets old.
0: <laughs> I, I actually was wondering, after writing so many books and having so many pub days, do you even care anymore? <laughs> is it exciting or what?
1: Oh, no. I, yeah, I definitely I definitely do. No, I, I definitely do care.
0: So I'm sure every book to you has something special and meaningful and maybe there's a story attached to the writing or just something that you know you'll remember forever about it. What What happened when writing Walk the Wire that, that maybe stood out for you versus all the other books that you've written? Yeah, I guess I
1: guess probably for me it was going to such a very different geographic place when I'd never been before and maybe digging down more personally into Decker than I had before. And, you know, also even though it hadn't happened when I was writing the book, since it's pub day in the middle of the pandemic, you know, that one is pretty memorable too. So life definitely has changed over the last three or four months.
0: That's true. I mean, how are you coping with that? I mean, how have yeah, you I mean, wrapped your head yeah, around
1: I mean, it? Yeah, you know, we're sheltering in place. Yeah, and sheltering in place and you know, trying to follow all the health experts' advice and you know, trying to do all the right things and you know, keep out of people's ways who have to, you know, go to work. And, I, you know, I, I feel like I have it easy. I, uh, you know, the people who are having to work in healthcare centers and first responders and hospitals and all that, I can only imagine those people are going through. It's just, it's horrible.
0: I agree. Oh my gosh. So Walk the Wire, for listeners who might not know what this book is about, would you mind explaining it? Just a, a brief synopsis?
1: Yeah. So this is the sixth installment of the Amos Decker series. He's my memory man. He's his ex-football player, who had a brain trauma while he was playing, and it changed his brain, basically. It, it gave him an infallible memory. Now, he's a detective. He works for the FBI, and he's been called to North Dakota along with his partner, Alex Jameson. The body has been discovered, and the interesting thing about the body is it's already been autopsied, like you would have in a postmortem. And they don't know why they're being called in for a local murder. The FBI usually is not. But when they get up to this town called London, North Dakota, it's a fracking town. So it really is just you know, been built up overnight and all these people coming in so they oil and to make all this money really fast. And it's an interesting place. I was as much from the write about this town as it was, you know, sort of delving into the plot and into what Decker was doing there. So the whole town is sort of full of dark secrets and a lot of things are going on that aren't readily apparent. What really drew me to this place to create it were a couple of things. One was the fracking component. Two was this military installation that's there that has some secret mission going on. And three, it is this religious organization that's there that has, you know, something interesting to do with the plot too. So that sort of triumvirate of plot elements made it pretty, pretty cool to write.
0: I think it's great that you can use the word triumvirate when describing the plot. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You don't often throw that word in. I don't hear that that often. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) And by the way,
0: in the beginning, when you have one of the characters basically vomit from the sight from a dead body, that's, very gripping way to get the reader in immediately. <laughs> I feel like I was trying to like turn my head and not read, which of course is hard in a book, right? <laughs> it's one thing in a movie, but I'm like, oh gosh, what's next?
1: Yeah, you had you had a sympathetic character with you in the opening chapter. <laughs> yes,
0: thank you for that. <laughs> and what what is it about the fracking element of this book that you found so interesting? Like why, why fracking? Why did you want that town? How'd you pick it? Like, how'd you come up with it?
1: I, I like the environment. The idea of an environment is sort of like a wild, wild West, where the rules, just the civilized rules, didn't apply as much as they do in other places. And this idea of people just rushing to this area to make a bunch of money, sort of rolling the dice, because who knows it was going to last? If you look at today, where the oil prices dropping to basically zero, I'm not sure how many of these fracking companies are going to make it. But there's an idea of the whole wild, wild West. And I guess one of the things that surprised me was that you know across this whole. You know, the Great Plains, you see these flares everywhere because they can't make enough money selling the natural gas that you find along with oil everywhere. So they just burn it. You know, so you have these flares sticking up out of these oil wells, and this methane is just going right up to the atmosphere. You know, billions of cubic feet of natural gas is being burned off for nothing. And that really shows you, you know, how capitalism works. If you can't make money off something, you just dump it.
0: ruthless (laughs) also so in this book you had characters enter who had been part of your other series of books kind of like a the jeffersons making an appearance in all in the family type of you know cross pollination of characters (laughs) what what made you decide to do that
1: well i i had been getting a you know so much sort of response from people can you bring back this character bring back this series and and I was thinking about this book and how the plot was going to develop and did it provide an opportunity or, uh, or a way for me to bring in another character that was plausible. And so the way I constructed the plot that made it sort of high stakes or maybe national security interests involved allowed me to bring these characters back in because otherwise, you know, why would they show up in, in a murder investigation in the middle of North Dakota? So it was a fun way, sort of, I guess, just to a tip of the hat to other characters and to my fans, say, okay, you know, you you asked for them, you got them, (laughs) you go have fun.
0: (laughs) Do you have, like, good relationships with fans? Like, do you you try to incorporate elements that they suggest? Or how how do you communicate with fans? Is it mostly through email or yeah, tell me about
1: that yeah yeah a lot of it is email a lot of it is on you know the social media platforms or they'll you know tweet and instagram and uh, on facebook and a lot mm-hmm. of it too is just going to book events you know you have signings and you have big crowds and people come up and they you know when's the next you know can you bring the camel back can you bring Kenya Maxwell back can you bring you know x character back so i get a lot of feedback you know on social media but i get a lot of feedback face to at face at book events as well
0: I miss being face to face with people. <laughs> that was nice when you could do that.
1: Yes, I know. Can we remember those days? I
0: know barely. <laughs> how do you keep up? I mean, you've written a bazillion books, and you have so many fans around the globe. How do you? How can you keep up with your social media feeds and your emails? I mean, I find it hard to keep up, and I'm like a nobody. I mean, I, I, how do you? How do you do it? How do you stay on top of things? And does it stress you out or not?
1: No, it doesn't. I mean, I I have, you know, people who do that, who work with me, who handle almost all of that. I rarely tweet on my own. I just tweet uh, a few days ago that I had pictures of my two dogs sitting in chairs looking very grumpily out at the camera. And then I said, my, my dogs have hidden their leashes because we, we've been walking them too much. <laughs> example of one of my tweets but more you know most of the time it's I have a person who does all that the social media and I the emails and requests and all that comes through the site and then we'll sit down each week and go through all the stuff so I don't really have to focus on that very much I my my focus is really on the writing
0: and how how long does it take for you to write each of your books or does it vary
1: It it varies, but if I had to give an estimate of the average, it would probably be six to seven months to write each book. That's pretty much focused work during that time.
0: Have you ever, and maybe this is an inappropriate question, but have you ever figured out how many words, like how much you're basically getting paid per word? You know, like, like how many words, how many words you write per year and then like, you know, back solving for like, and then I would just, I know that's a random question. I was just wondering,
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll have to go back and calculate that. I've, I've never, I've never done that. I was probably too much. I paid too much for words. <laughs> you know, when I was a lawyer for all those years, I was paid by the hour. So I, I, every time I would sit down and do my timesheets, I would like, I'm selling my life. One hour at a time. This is pathetic.
0: (laughs) I've never understood really getting paid by the hour because the incentive is just to do your work slowly, right? I mean, I don't know. I feel like if I was getting paid by the hour, I would just like dilly-dally versus like getting paid for what I produce and then I would speed it up.
1: Yeah, there you go. You just summed up the ways the lawyers work. So (laughs) (laughs) The longer you take, the more they get paid. And I think a lot of clients these days have sort of gotten a wind of that and they ask for like uh, you know, contract fees. So here's the assignment. Give me a, the price of what it's going to be. We're not paying you by the hour. So that's what I do when I, when I retain lawyers now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's smart.
1: <laughs> I know how the game is played. Yeah,
0: exactly. Since you've been on the other side. <laughs> and tell me more <laughs> about the Wish You Well Foundation that you established with your wife. I was reading through and seeing some of the different places from all over who you've given grants to, which is really amazing. How do you, how do you pick who you, who you choose to give grants to?
1: So we get probably about 5,000 grant applications a year, which is a lot for a private foundation. And we go through them all. And we have a staff that handles that. And then we have a board of directors meeting four times a year to review the applications that sort of made it through the vetting process. The, the, the biggest vetting is that it has to meet our mission goal, which is to eradicate you know adult illiteracy in the U.S. So whatever the application is, it has to fall within those parameters. And then we look at you know, how many people they're servicing, how wisely they're spending their money. Do they have widespread community support? And do we feel like they're, they're doing their mission well and it's an important mission? So all those criteria go into you know, making decisions on which ones to fund. And there are a lot of great programs out there. We try to support as many of them as we possibly can. And we had a, we had a banner year last year. I think we ended up, Giving our grants over 35 or 40 different programs across the country in a single year. So that was a lot for us.
0: That's great. That's so wonderful that you do that. It's really awesome. Do you think eradication is possible? I mean, it's one thing to say you want to like improve literacy, but to get rid of it, I mean that's that's a big goal.
1: It is a big goal. If we were if we got serious about funding education, the way we structured education. In the way we have, you know, right now you look at, you know, kids in rural areas who can't go to school because it's been canceled, you know, kids in metropolitan areas, they can just get online and do all their work. And kids in rural, a lot of rural areas that don't have broadband availability or they may not even have a computer at home, you know, are falling through the crack. So it's how much, you know, how serious you want to be about it and also how much money you want to put into it. People say, oh, my God, we spend so much money on Education. I said, you know, well, if we spend a fraction of the money on education that we spend on, you know, the defense budget in this country every year. So, you know, the money that we we spent now on this pandemic payouts, you know, trillions of dollars, that could, that could eradicate illiteracy and poverty in the U.S. alone. So it's all about how much money you want to spend on it and how, how many people you want to have working on it. And, you, have, you know, clear strategy, clear goals, and you can really reach out to everyone with enough resources, yes, you can do it. But I don't think we're there yet
0: as a company. I mean, there's a balance between like survival and things that make your life better, right? I mean, I feel like the payouts now are to try to help people just get through and eat. (laughs)
1: But I mean, not to make It absolutely is. And 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 we definitely need to do it. I think, though, after this is over, you know, where interest rates are so low so much that, you know, governments can borrow money for almost free. Some countries that, you know, the interest rates are negative, meaning that, you know, they're paying you to take take their money, which is kind of crazy. But you know we may want to get more serious about education in this country, and for a lot of different reasons you see a lot there's this enormous just you know widespread disinformation campaign coming from all over the place, and a lot of people you know buy into it for various reasons, and that's you know and because of that, you know we have a lot of problems and issues in this country and education and allowing people to have the wherewithal to arrive at their own decisions and conclusions, and being able to read a wide variety of sources you know can help. Combat that; otherwise, we're sort of going down a dark path.
0: My dad has been trying to campaign for teachers to not have to pay income tax as a way to incentivize more people to become teachers.
1: Yeah, I think people now. I, I've seen so many, you know, tweets from people who are now having to homeschool their kids, saying, "Okay, every teacher should get ten million dollars a year <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> because this is really hard work." <laughs>
0: It's true. I have four kids at home. And I mean, I forgot to even like have one of my kids get on Zoom at the right time for the right class. I'm like, how hard can this be? Like, Why can I not get this right? Oh, my gosh. It's like, I finally had to like set a recurring alarm on my phone and apologize to the teachers. I was like in tears. But yeah, it's no joke. It's, uh, <laughs> it's tough. So did you always know you wanted to be a writer? How did you become who you are today? How did this happen?
1: I was the sort of kid who loved to tell tall tales and stories all the time but I think really the thing for me was I loved to read as a kid I loved adventure tales and mysteries and fantasy and I loved being able to just read through words and they put pictures in my head and it got to the point where I wanted to be able to do that as well. I just fell in love with using words as sort of the tools of a trade. And I started writing short stories when I was a kid. My mom gave me a a blank page journal. I think she gave it to me. She just shut me up because, (laughs) if I'm writing something down, I'm not talking. And I never really looked back from there. Although, I, you know, I spent 10 years as a trial lawyer because I couldn't make a living as a writer back then. So I did what most writers do. I worked in one job while I, you know, tried to hone my craft and, you know, in my off hours. And I don't know if I was meant to be a writer, but I certainly had that desire to be. My older brother is an artist, and he knew he wanted to be an artist since he was a little kid. And I always sort of envied him knowing what he wanted to do with his life. But I think I came close to that with sort of my obsession with writing.
0: And how do you stay motivated, or is it just out of love? Like, for each new project, do you get a, a new excitement? Like, how do you just stay in it? Does it ever feel like work to you versus the joy of just writing?
1: I think you kind of you hit on one element of it is love. It, it's just this desire of wanting to do this over and over again. And, and if you aren't doing it, there's a huge hole in your life. And I think the other component is sort of fear. You never want to get so edgy and you know cocky that you think you know what you're doing as a writer. So you can just kind of knock, them, knock each book out with not a lot of work. I think that's when you've lost your edge as a writer. You might as well go hang it up because <laughs> then you can become complacent and formulaic and every book's going to read like the book prior. So I approach every project with you know my same sort of obsession of wanting to do this, but also with this terror that you know I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm going to fail miserably. And fear is a great antidote to complacency, I can tell you that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, I think if there's one thing that unites all writers, it's like some sort of deep-seated insecurity. I mean, the fact that you could worry that you're not <laughs> going to write a good book at this point is so it's it's almost like comical, but yet you you feel that and it motivates you. It's really unbelievable how each book brings up all of these feelings.
1: Yeah, it's like when you're putting, you know, this this thing together that has a million different moving parts. And, and and for me it's like how in the world did i put this all together i mean i i know in one sense how i did it was oh, some you know some creativity and a lot of hard work but it's such an unwieldy thing you look back on it and then and then you think oh my god now i have to do it again i have to put a million little pieces <laughs> together again how in the world am i going to accomplish that it's, you know <laughs> So that's that's all part of it.
0: <laughs> How do you do? Do you outline a lot? Do you have like little index cards everywhere or sticky notes? How do you do it?
1: I have these big notebooks and in them I will put, you know, I'll do my research. I will do like interviews that I do with people in various fields that I need to know about. I do many out, miniature outlines, you know, chapter by chapter. I, did, I call them momentum outlines where I have the big sweeping movements that I want to have, the big plot points that I might have, you know, a thousand different plot points tagged to them that i'm going to accomplish through a series of chapters it's not all plotted out it's not all outlined i leave a lot of it just to you know i i might have a like i'm i'll write today after the satellite tour is over and i've got some things i want to accomplish i know what the movements are but i have then i have to come up with the words and the characterizations and the elements to you know implement those and i'll i'll be thinking of those as i'm sitting down and writing I mean, that tends to work best for me. I think if you immerse yourself in the material, the epiphanies come really fast and steady because you're part of it. You're in the moment.
0: And do you give yourself a, like a word count goal per day or do you set hours where you are writing or how do you structure your time and your output?
1: No, I, I, usually, I usually get up in the morning, I'm writing in the morning, but I won't write throughout the day if I have something that I want to write. You know, if I'm really into it and the plot is moving and things that are occurring to me, and I just keep writing. I don't have a page limit or I don't count words. And so every day is a little bit different. You know, it could be a lot of words. It could be very few words depending on where I was at that moment. But I tend to, you know, write when it really hits me. Mm-hmm. But I go, you know, wherever I am, I have my laptop and I open it and I work on it. Yeah. And however many hours a day, it varies. Some days, it's a few hours, some days, it's quite quite more than that.
0: Do you have like a favorite place to write? Do you usually write at home or do you go to an office or where do you like to write?
1: I haven't, yeah, when I'm in at home, home I'm in Florida now, but I have, an, I have an office here. But when I'm in Northern Virginia, I have an office outside of the house and that's where my, my staff is and all that. And so if I'm in town, I go there every day. But I always felt the perfect place to write is not the physical space, it's in your head. If you're in the zone, you can write anywhere. There's a little Greek deli that I like to go to up in Northern Virginia, and I have a little table in the back and my laptop, and I just sit right in the middle of 150 people eating, and I feel like I'm in a cocoon. I don't (laughs) know why, but I've written a lot of of good stuff for that Greek deli.
0: (laughs) Wow. I recently interviewed an author who who wrote most of her book, Hiding in the Back of Her Minivan. So I guess you can do it anywhere.
1: You can do it anywhere. You know, it's whatever works for you. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Having written all these books, do you you must have, like, a lot of advice. But do you have any key pieces of advice on how to keep the material fresh and how to stay motivated and how to write really gripping books the way that you do?
1: I think, you know, you really need to find subject matter that you have a lot of interest in, not necessarily that you know a lot about, but that you like to know about. Because the biggest thing, I think, with aspiring writers and where they fall down is they think of something you want to write about for the wrong reasons, maybe because they feel like it's a hot trend, everybody's really interested in it, you know, a code book or dinosaurs, you know, whatever, and they go off and write it and they run out of gas because they, they spend 100 pages writing and they're like, I'm not really interested in this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I have no passion. So they just stop and they wasted all that time and all those pages. So if you can find something that you really have a lot of interest in that will fill up your gas tank, your creative gas tank, your chances are much better that you'll be able to get through this long process of writing whatever it is you're writing, and not running out of gas. So picking the right reason and the right story for valid reasons that you have that interest in them can go a long way for you to avoid that sort of failure of running out of gas.
0: I feel like some writers get hung up, like... As if they're at a gas station, but you know how they have the three different levels of gas, like eighty nine, ninety one, ninety yes. three. Like you can yes. stand there debating, like which gas do you need to fill up the tank this time, right? Is it worth going for the ninety three, <laughs> or will will the car run well enough on eighty nine, right? It's a it's a it's a debate. I feel like writers have that with the material. Like maybe this will fill up my tank, but can it last a whole book? I don't know.
1: <laughs> uh, it is, and it it can be tricky. So, but I've always felt that you know if people were destined to become writers if that's the right word that the, the sort of this maniacal obsession with words and writing and doing it will carry them through all the obstacles that get in people's way when they're trying to forge a career in a creative endeavor um, because there are lots of them you know you could just get tired of it bored you don't want to do it you don't you don't have the discipline to do it you don't really like playing with the words that much and then those people sort of fall on the wayside and that's okay because you know I want to be a musician, I, I would never be a musician. I just don't have the talent for it or the discipline or anything else. So it's almost like this you know, evolutionary process where the people who are meant to do it, probably will do it just because they have the tools inside of them to get through all their obstacles and the gauntlet you have to run. And that's the way it is for a lot of occupation. It's certainly, I think, more so in the creative endeavor just because it really ha- you really have to spark a lot of you know, something inside of you. And every day to create something that didn't exist before you sat down and wrote about it, so, which is a little bit different from other occupations. So it's just that inner drive, and, and luckily I had I had some of that because I, I can't imagine my life not writing. I've been doing it ever since I was a kid, and it's just something that really speaks to me. And I think for most writers, they'll tell you the same thing.
0: I would I would argue that you have more than just some drive at this point. <laughs> <But> <laughs> It seems to me, I mean, you must have bookshelves just, I mean, you need like a whole room just to have all, a copy of each of your books. I would I would argue that would be a pretty powerful drive. But anyway. <laughs> so what's your next yeah. book? What's I'm
1: the- I'm I'm buying, I'm, buying, I'm buying the premium gas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you
0: definitely went for the 93. What is your next book? What are you working on now? and what are you working on now if if not the next one?
1: I'm doing something different. I usually never work on two books at the same time, but I'm working on two books now. One is a sequel to a series with an FBI agent named Natalie Pine. So one week, uh, I'm, I'm in Contemporary Times 2020. And then the next week, I'm working a sequel to a book that came out last summer, summer of last year, One Good Deed. And that book is set in 1949. So one week I'm in 2020 and another week I'm in 1949. It's kind of, I have my own personal time machine. It's kind of <laughs> weird, but it's working.
0: <laughs> wow. That's that's impressive. And do you have more, um, I know you've had a lot of, of your books become films. Do you have any Hollywood projects going on at the moment or obviously not right now, but any coming up or yeah, anything you're are, excited about?
1: Yeah, we are. We have two. One is Amos Decker. I'm I, sold the film rights and television rights as Decker Tickle You know, They're a really big production company that has done a slew of terrific movies and won a lot of Academy Awards for So they're very excited about turning Decker, I believe, into like a television series. And then I have another television series that's in development that's not based on one of my books, based on an idea and a character that I came up with that is moving slowly but surely forward towards, you know, starting production. So we'll see. You know, it's I know this over the years it's a crapshoot most of the projects don't get done after a lot of work but you know the ones that come through you know hopefully will be good ones
0: excellent well thank you David for taking so much time on your pub day for talking to me and congratulations on Walk the Wire and thank all you. of your supercharged output and <laughs> thanks for thanks for chatting with me
1: <laughs> no I enjoyed it very much I, I, I love talking to people about books so it's great
0: me too so that worked out well <laughs> all right. have a great day You too. Okay, thanks. thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Modern Mahjong for partnering with us today. Modern Mahjong. We will think of you anytime we need to give a gift to a mahjong playing person. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.